Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, Angry Planet listeners. This is Matthew Galt. I'm here with a special dispatch from us. Uh, this is one of the bonus episodes that we've been putting out on our Substack, which you can sign up for at angryplanet.substack.com or angryplanetpod.com. We wanted to give you all a sense of what those episodes are like and what the kind of work we're doing over there. Uh, this is a discussion with the Washington Post's uh, Joby Warwick about Syria's chemical weapons. There are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. One day, all of the facts in about 30 years' time will be published. When genocide has been carried out in this country almost with impunity, and the event is near completion, people talk about intervention. You don't get freedom peaceful. Freedom is never uh, safeguarded peaceful. Anyone who is depriving you of freedom isn't deserving of, an, of a peaceful approach. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Ford. And I'm Matthew Galt. Think about this. The Nazis invented sarin gas, and even they thought, no, that's just too much. Syria's Bashar al-Assad had no such hesitancy. Thousands of people have died. The U.S. threatened to strike Syria, but Russia suggested striking a deal instead. It was weird. To talk us through the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons throughout the country's civil war is Joby Warwick of the Washington Post. Warwick is the winner of an improbable two Pulitzer Prizes, including one for his book on ISIS, Black Flags. His new book, Redline, The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World, is just out. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Starting at the very beginning, which is what we usually do, can you tell us a bit about the modern history of chemical weapons? I, I love the way you frame this, this thing that the Nazis came up with. And the backstory is the Nazis or the Germans didn't set out to create sarin per se, they were working with trying to create the most kick-ass pesticides they could possibly make. And out of that process comes this, this really lethal chemical, which turns out to have this ability to kill humans very easily as well as people. And so they worked on it. They refined it. They developed it. They had this weapon. And then they decided, yeah, this is probably too dangerous for us to mess with. Because if we do this, then the British and others will, will do the same. And so they, they created a stockpile, which was never used at least in a significant way. They used other things in concentration camps, as we know, but this one they kept aside. Fast forward, you know, 
years later, the Russians and the Soviets both embraced this thing, the sarin, and, and improved on it. They created a variation called VX, which is a great battlefield weapon because you can make things essentially area denial weapon. You can, you know, if it splashes on a tank, you can't touch the tank or you or could be killed. Sarin kind of disperses like a fog. So it's very, it spreads easily. But these are incredibly dangerous weapons. And Syria embraced them. This was their weapon of mass destruction. This was their counterbalance to what, to what Israel had next door, the nuclear arsenal. This is going to be their strategic arsenal. And so they spent a lot of money on it and developed it over decades. And it became one of the biggest and most sophisticated in the world. If you look around in 2011, who had a bigger one? Maybe North Korea, we don't know. The leftover stuff in the Soviet Union and the United States was pretty much gone. So this was probably the biggest chemical stockpile in the world at the time. And they actually used it. That's probably, that's the defining feature. You did say just that the United States and the Soviet Union both had massive stockpiles. Why do we not have a massive stockpile anymore? So in the 80s, and even going back beyond that, there was this sort of sensitivity in this terrible arms race that the United States and Soviet Union are doing, that even these weapons were not ones that we wanted to use, that these being chemical, but also biological. And we had a bio program too, and we spent a lot of money on that, and the Russians certainly did. But we started taking these off the table. Nixon unilaterally said, we're not going to do bio-warfare. So took that off the table. And then in the 80s, this momentum develops for a new chemical weapons treaty that would make sure that you can't just use it to use chemical weapons in warfare, which existing treaties already said, but you can't develop them at all. You have to eliminate your stockpiles if you have them. And so a lot of effort went into to doing just that in the 80s and 90s. And just to explain how difficult a problem this is to eliminate a stockpile once you have it, it has taken the United States more than 20 years tens of billions of dollars, and we're still not done with it. We still haven't finished destroying all our stuff from, from the Cold War. What does sarin gas do to a person? Like, what effect does it have on the body? What happens when you get hit by it? The insidious thing about these things called nerve agents, and sarin and VX are both part of that family, is that, first of all, they're extremely lethal. Think of cyanide being one of the deadliest substances we commonly think about. Sarin is 26 times deadlier in terms of the, the tiny dose you need to kill someone. And what it essentially does is it stops your nerves from being able to communicate with one another. It, nerve impulses can't jump across the synapses into your brain. And so all the involuntary systems in your body shut down, including your ability to breathe, your heart rate, everything. So essentially, it's this huge shock to your nervous system that renders you incapable of functioning as an organism. And it happens very quickly. That's what's so bad about it. Once you have a, a, a good dose of it, unless you get an antidote right away, and there are a couple around, you're pretty much toast. So it's extremely lethal and you can't, there's some of the, the other variations that have been developed since then, like Novichok and VX, just a little dab on the skin is enough to kill you. You don't even have to inhale it necessarily. It's, it's that deadly. Why do you think taboos against these have held while North Korea pursues nukes, America and Russia continues to modernize nukes, like that we still, we seem to be okay with I say okay with loosely, more okay with that weapon of mass destruction. It is kind of peculiar because you can argue that it's also really horrible to die of shrapnel wounds or concussion injuries from a IED or something like that. So they're all horrible. There's something about the idea of being exterminated by a poison gas that essentially turned the world's stomach back in World War One when it happened on an industrial scale. These 
first big chemical weapons were developed for that for trench warfare in World War One. And after the war was over, everybody looked at this and said, no, we're going to set some rules for warfare. And one of them is going to be no more of this. It just the prospect of this indiscriminate uncontrollable because it really it's dependent on wind and, and, and local conditions. This kind of weapon is just, it's just too much for humanity. And so we banned it as a, as an international community. And today only two or three countries, there's the, the North Koreans, a handful of others have not signed up for it. Syria was one of the last holdouts and now they're officially part of the, the chemical weapons convention. And we see how much good that's done. So where did Assad. Okay. So Bashar is the son of Hafez. And who started the program? And yeah, how did Bashar end up with so much? So it starts, yeah, with Hafez, the, the father. And he is, his intent in the beginning, and this is important as the story develops, was to have an answer to Israel. And that's really what it's all about. It, it, they don't really envision ever using it against their own people, certainly. They don't think about using it as a terrorist weapon. They want to put this stuff inside the cones of Scud missiles. So if there's a war with Israel, they've got this deterrent weapon. They can lob some missiles at Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. And so they developed this program, and they did it with some help. They had some technical advice from various players, notably some former Soviet scientists who came over and, and offered some advice. They bought a lot of equipment from Europeans, but ultimately they, they used their own expertise and their own um, brain power to develop a pretty good arsenal. So by the time Bashar al-Assad comes in, the, the son, the one that's still president today, there is a kind of, it's in the bunker. It's something they've already built. They modernize it, they update things, but it, it's essentially, it is a, it's something that's locked in. And the size of it, it's impressive. They got about 1,300 tons of liquid stuff, and they have munitions and shells and things they can use. And one of the, the little innovations was they created something called binary sarin, which we, are, we also had. But it means you take kind of peanut butter and jelly, two ingredients, combine them at the last minute, so it remains very stable until you use it. And then at the last minute, you put the two together, you've got really powerful sarin and off your shells go. And so that's a system they developed beginning in the eighties and, and really completing by about 2000. So they never used the weapons against Israel. Mm. So how has he ended up using them? So here's the thing that uh, gets really interesting about Syria's civil war. And, and it explains really why the United States and, and our allies and the neighbors in the region really got upset about this. If you think about all the little and bigger uprisings going on because of Arab Spring, you've got revolutions everywhere. The one that is in Syria is quickly more dangerous than the rest. First, because Assad is just a brutal thug and he's, he is willing to sacrifice his own country, essentially burn the country in order to save himself. The other thing is they have a, a, a weapons of mass destruction. They've got this stockpile, unlike any other country in the Middle East that's at having uprisings, and it's vulnerable and it's dangerous. The country's being torn apart. The government's losing control. So you have that vulnerability aspect, which is really scary. But the other thing that, occur, that occurs to Assad and his generals is we've got this weapon. We can use it to stop the insurgency. We can use it to demoralize, to terrorize, to terrorize the opposition. And so they start to do that in 
very small ways in 2012. Just a small attack here, a, a single artillery shell, some small canisters the size of a tear gas canister dropped on towns to see what would happen. And they realized they, they were onto something. They had something that could truly frighten uh, local populations. And if you have a siege underway or you've got a tough neighborhood you're trying to break, pull out your chemical weapons and you, you can do a lot in a hurry. And that's what they began to do. So the world reacted. And uh, among those that reacted, the United States, the world's policeman, <laughs> and uh, Barack Obama said, he used the phrase red line, didn't really define it. Mm. And in the end, it actually didn't really get defined. Do you, what did he mean by it? And what happened from there? Yeah, and this is a really good part of the narrative. And in the book, I try to explain a little bit about how that term was used and why it was used and then what the consequences were. But just to cut the story short, in the middle of 2012, the Obama administration was receiving some really scary hair-on-fire intelligence from the Middle East. And one of those threads of intelligence was this observed feature of the Syrians getting ready to do something with their stockpile. The Israelis are watching this very closely. They've already handed out gas masks to their citizens because they think something bad is going to happen. Their fear is that Assad is getting ready to hand over these the jewels to Hezbollah, this militia next door in Lebanon that has 10,000 artillery rockets or, or, or missiles pointed at Israel. And essentially, either for safekeeping or for whatever reason, they were in the process of, of handing those over. And so the Obama administration goes nuts. They send out the emissaries. They talk to the Russians, the Iranians. They send messages to the Syrians saying, don't do this. But they also stand up publicly several times, Hillary Clinton and, and Obama both getting up in, in public forums and saying, Syria, we're warning you, don't do this. Don't give your weapons away. Don't use them. And in one instance, it was actually at a news conference at the White House to talk about healthcare, something completely different. And at the very end, Chuck Todd asked the question, what about these chemical weapons in Syria and what do you mean? And Obama's reply is essentially repeating what he'd been saying. He said, we're telling Syria, don't do this. If you do, it's a red line for us. If you cross this line, it changes our calculus. It's a vague promise. It doesn't say we're going to strike or we're going to do this, or we're going to invade. But he's putting Syria on notice that there's going to be severe consequences if you cross this line. And that becomes a bit of an albatross or kind of boxes Obama in a corner because the read on that, what people see in that in those words, is a threat of military force. The opposition in Syria certainly believes that means a military attack is coming if this line is crossed. The Russians think so. And so it's all kind of setting up the, the stage for what is this testing moment that when the weapons are used, when the line is crossed, what is America going to do? And America didn't know. So we really made a threat before we had, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. well, I guess that's not the first time. And then what was the follow-up question <laughs> that that got us all, in, that got us into weirder trouble? Yeah, so the follow-up question is, and it doesn't happen that day, but it happens in the months that follow, a couple things happen. One is the scary activity that we saw that got everybody spun up stops. Assad stops this activity, the Israelis are calming down. But what Assad starts to do is use these little attacks. And this presents a dilemma because the Obama administration has declared the use of chemical weapons a red line. They can see that Assad is starting to use, but in such tiny ways that it's it's hard to justify a military strike if you have, in one case, a single person killed. And what do you do about that? And so there's all these debates in the White House. You know, do we even acknowledge these attacks? Are they serious enough to just say something about? And ultimately, it's interesting that one of the biggest 
and most consequential decisions about Syria from the United States was in response to these little pinprick attacks because Obama authorizes a covert military program, a train and equip program, something to give the, the rebels arms and training that we had been reluctant to give them in the past. So that starts because of these small attacks. But it wasn't until August of 2013 when Syria drops the big one and kills 1,400 people in a single day with sarin. That is this huge breach of the red line that, that everybody in the world feels like, we've got to do something now. When they did that, what did Assad think was going to happen hmm. when he decided to do such a large attack? This was a big puzzle for me when I started working on this book, because it really made no sense. First of all, it happened at a time when actually there was a team of UN inspectors on the ground who were there to collect evidence about chemical weapons use. And you have this attack that's going on five miles outside Damascus and close enough that the, the inspectors can see the plumes from their hotel rooms. That's how close it is. So A, that makes no sense. B, you've got this warning from Obama that he's going to do something. So why would Assad do something crazy? And because it is so counterintuitive, it led to all kinds of conspiracy theories. And maybe there's a false flag attack and it was somebody else who's trying to get the United States to get into the war. But it turns out as best we can reconstruct it is that it was a local decision made by field commanders because Assad, it turns out, had delegated responsibility for the use of chemical weapons to his commander. Said, you can use this stuff if you need to in battle. You don't have to come to me for a sign off. And that, that was used in this in a, was essentially a fairly routine skirmish in the outskirts of, of, of Damascus to try to, to, to push back on an opposition army there. And they miscalculated. They, they sent in a handful of artillery shells. It was the middle of the night. Sarin is heavier than air, so it sinks down into basements. And in this area of, of the Damascus suburbs, you've got hundreds of people who seek shelter in these basement apartments overnight, children and women particularly. And so it becomes massively lethal in a way that took even the Syrians by surprise. And we know this because of intercepted communications where the next day the Syrians are saying, whoops, that, that went a little further than we wanted it to. And oh boy, we're going to get in trouble now. All those intercepted communications helped us to be convinced this really was a Syrian attack, but they completely bungled it. They made something, they meant to drive out some rebel fighters from their strongholds. And instead, they had a, a mass slaughter that was on TV. And so now there's this international spectacle that's getting Assad. And I have a tangent question here. Is our chemical weapons even really an effective battlefield weapon? Yeah, they kill people, right? Like they're great at that particular job. But I'm thinking like as a strategic or a tactical weapon, is this even worth mm -hmm. it? Like, uh, and I keep thinking about airstrikes in air campaigns, which we have all of this data from both from World War II and from the conflict in Yugoslavia that you have to follow this up with some sort of ground invasion, right? If you just are doing airstrikes, you, all you tend to do is to entrench people, you give them a bonding experience uh, and make them want to fight more. Think about Britain during the Blitz, right? It's, it feels like chemical weapons just make everyone really mad and just read like it's a weapon of fear, sure, but the Syrian civil war is still going on. This is not a conflict that has in any way been resolved. That's a very good question. And, and I think one of the reasons that the, the world's powers were happy to give up chemical weapons is because they're really not effective as military weapons. And the trenches of World War One, yes, to some extent, until people got really good gas masks and, and countermeasures, and then they weren't so effective anymore. It, the, the, the famous ones like mustard gas, it maimed a lot of people. 
it didn't really kill that many people. And the same is true in warfare, especially modern warfare, where armies are moving around quickly. You can have an aerial denial because you used VX, but people just go around it. So it's really, it's a pretty crappy military weapon. And so that's why the Syrians innovated and decided we'll take it out of the warheads of these Scud missiles and we'll put them in, in, hand, in tear gas canisters and artillery shells and these big kind of barrel bombs they created. So they're perfect, perfect delivery systems, but only, only to terrorize. So the whole effect really was to terrorize civilian populations because they knew it couldn't crush the rebellion on its own, but could sure upset and, and frighten people. But it has a downside, which is it also angers other countries. And it has even the Russians and the Iranians, Assad's best friends, saying to Assad, you've gone too far. When the Iranians come to you and say, this is a bit brutal, you have to stop this nonsense. That's, that kind of is a message. Maybe you've, maybe you've overdone it with your chemical weapons. Well, and the Iranians have a memory of what it's like to be on the receiving end of chemical weapons. Right? Exactly do. Because if people remember back to the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, this was a war that in, involved chemical warfare. And the people in that region to this day, the memory of those attacks is burned to their brains. And it, it's a scary thing to think about a chemical weapons bomb landing on your village. It's devastating. Okay, so we have the attack in the Damascus suburbs. We actually have inspectors. We have all, there's very little doubt as to what happened, right? There can be official doubt, but no one at the UN gets to pronounce that Bashar al-Assad has actually done this. But clearly, anybody who has a reasonable red line would say it's been crossed. Mm-hmm. So what happens? We don't attack. The yeah. United States does not attack. What happens instead? This is another thing that I think is brought out in the book that, that is overlooked when people think about this period of time. And when it is absolutely convincing to me, based on my interviews and the material I gathered, that Obama initially really wanted to strike. Because every, like everybody else who's watching these images on TV, he's thinking, this is terrible. We have to do something about this. And it's, I've set this red line and I have to strike. And so you see in the first days after this strike in Damascus, there is this flurry of activity to get ready to do something. So all the, the missiles are in their tubes. The ships are off the coast. Everybody, the military plans are dusted off. So they're ready to do something. But there are a couple of things that, that hold Obama back. One is the whole problem of weapons of mass destruction and bad intelligence and you know leading us into war so we had the whole memory of iraq so he wants to make sure that we have a not our intelligence is not just 100 percent ironclad but he wants to be able to bring it to the american people so people can't accuse him of going to war over false pretenses over wmd again so that takes a couple of days to do that the second problem is you have this team of inspectors on the ground inside syria and the problem with that is they are there to to gather facts and so do you send missiles into a country before the, the fact finders have finished the job? This is very inconvenient. So Obama is pushing the UN to get them out. We already know what happened here. There's no point in this investigation. Just pull them out. But the UN refuses to do it, says they have to finish their mission. So that slows them down, too. As all this is happening, then the real hesitancy comes in because the, the British were, were part of a coalition with us. They were going to strike along with us. The parliament in Britain turns that idea down, says, no, we're not going to participate. The Germans start to warn Obama that you, this is going to be bad. You should wait for the UN to do its work. And so he, Obama has this moment where he thinks, if I'm going to do this, what I should do is get my make this a little bit politically uh, palatable by getting Congress to back me up. So he decides, I'm going to go to Congress. I've always said as a candidate that the president shouldn't start wars on their, without congressional consent. So we'll have congressional consent. We'll get all of Congress to, to vote to do this together. 
And the folks in the cabinet really thought this was going to work, that the Democrats would line up behind the president. Republicans would, would not turn down the possibility of striking Assad, who they disliked. And everyone was upset about the weapons attack. And when they went to Congress, they got crickets. Nobody wanted to have any part of this. Nobody wanted to be have anything to do with another conflict in the Middle East. And so Obama is set, is left with, he's naked and he essentially has no options. Congress won't go along. He's not going to do this on his own. And so he's at this point where he can't do anything except just look helpless and weak. And that is the moment when this deal pops out of the ether. And here's this opportunity to save face by doing something else, which is to strike a deal with Syria to get rid of the weapons stockpile. And I also just want to, I want to throw this wrench in there too, because I think this is an important point and something we've been talking about a little bit on the show recently is that one of the ways that this is also different than the lead up to the second Iraq war is that you have a bunch of open source investigators on the internet that are using data to basically prove that there are chemical weapons here. You've got people like Brown Moses who would go on to found Bellingcat who are saying like, hey, here's the evidence. Here's an evidence from me, an independent source ostensibly about these things happening, right? It wasn't, this stuff was pretty well documented at the time. Yeah, exactly right. So there was no real question about A, the fact that Assad had these weapons. And one little great nugget from the book is is one reason we knew is because we had a mole inside Syria's program. We had a scientist who was feeding information to the CIA for more than a decade. So we had them dead to rights on what they were doing. But the the other thing is, once the attack was used, it was not just the Americans and the Turks and other governments saying that, that Syria had launched the attack, but independent investigators who can do all this great sleuthing online, just triangulating, using imagery, using GPS gear. And, and they reconstructed the crime and showed where the rockets had come from. And it was pretty clear within days that this was an Assad operation, and the evidence only got better as the weeks went went ahead. So now Russia steps in. Russia has been involved in the war from the beginning. They're Assad's allies. They actually have their only base outside of Russia, inside of Syria. Mm -hmm. They've got a nice warm weather port. There are a lot of reasons why Russia is involved. It's a historical relationship with the Soviet Union. Now Russia steps in with, I don't know, it seems like an odd offer. They're Mm -hmm. saying, okay, Oh, you don't like their chemical weapons? We'll take care of that for you. It's, so what happens? I think we got to go back to the Kerry press conference first, right? Because he opens the door for them. Yeah. It, it turns out that this idea of trying to coax Syria to get rid of the weapons had been dangling in, in various places. Someone had raised it almost as a hypothetical at a cabinet meeting in as early as August 2013, so weeks ahead of time. Interestingly, and I, I report this in my book, the Israelis start to float the idea too. They they start to, to pitch it to the Russians. You know what, Russia, we can get rid of this problem here. And of course, for Israel, there's nothing better that they would like to see than this stockpile go away because there's a threat to them. So other people are dropping the head. But yeah, Kerry is having a press conference in London after a meeting and a reporter asks him this hypothetical, what would it take to stop the United States from going after Syria in retaliation for the strike? And Gary says, the only thing that would change our mind at this point would be if if Assad would agree to give up his entire stockpile and let us come in and inspect it and destroy the whole thing. And that's never going to happen. But that's the only thing that could possibly dissuade us. So Gary gets in the plane, heads back to Washington. As he's in the plane, phone rings, and it's uh, it's Lavrov, the foreign minister from Russia, saying, oh, heard your press conference, interesting comments. We think this might work. And so they've been working behind the scenes with Assad and very quickly powerfully twisted his arm and and got him to go along with this. Why would they do that? For one, 
Russia really took the, the red, line, red line talk seriously. They understood our political process and how difficult it was, but they were really sure or seemed to be sure that Obama was going to do something and it could get their guy in trouble. So they wanted to head that off. The other thing is Russia didn't like these optics. They didn't like the, the idea of their boy committing atrocities on international cable television networks. And so they were ready to sit down on them. They, they, they thought they, they've never been particularly happy with Assad. They would love to trade him for somebody else, but he's the best they've got. And so this was a chance to, to rein in a problem, to get rid of this, you know, this terrible embarrassment, but also maybe save Assad's bacon. If they can prevent an attack, they can keep their boy in power longer. And that, so it was a win-win from the Russians' point. Why does Russia care about Syria at all? And this is important because you see, as the story goes on, how much they care. And in the beginning, it's, okay, Russia has this nice warm water port at Tartus, which is on this, the Syrian coast. Happens to be the only foreign warm water port in the world outside of Russia that they have. So it's important. But it's not just because of, of shipping. This has become, over the decades, an important listening outpost. They've got a lot of intelligence apparatus there. And it's also their best foothold in the Middle East, a place where they want to exert more influence because of oil and because of geopolitics and lots of other things. It's been kind of Americans, America's turf. Uh, we call the shots in the Middle East. So here's a chance. This is the place where Russia has influence. They don't want to give it up. And it becomes clear just how important that is to them, because in the beginning, they're very willing to back up, to back Assad at the, U at the UN and to give him resources and to sell him you know, helicopters. But as the war progresses, they become more and more vested in making sure that Assad and his regime survive, even to the extent that by 2015, they've started their own military intervention. They've sent airplanes and, and troops into Syria for the first time in a Middle Eastern country since the Afghan invasion, which is not the Middle East, but in that part of the world. So this is really, it just shows the extent to which Russia was committed to making Assad stay in power much more than we ever were committed to trying to make him go. How were the weapons taken out of Syria? What kind of operation did it take to do it? If you can imagine the problem set here, it, this is mind boggling because, first of all, it's never happened that you've had a country wanting to give up an entire weapons program unilaterally with oversight, international oversight, and in the middle of a war. So all those complicated pieces are at play here. There is no inspection force or no like elite team that's going to parachute into a place like Syria and dismantle a weapons program. So all that had to be cobbled together. You had to create this international body made up of OPCW inspectors, this obscure office in, in The Hague that does chemical weapons enforcement, the UN, various contributions from the Americans and European allies. And so they built a program from scratch to, to oversee the elimination of the program. They were on the ground in three weeks. So this was happening lightning speed for the UN's point of view. But that was just part of the problem to get people into the country to make sure that Assyria was complying with its obligation. The other part is, what do you do with the weapons when you get them out? What country is going to say, okay, we'll take those. We'll let you bring 1,300 tons of sarin into our harbor and or to a Navy base. And nobody in the world, including the Russians and the Americans, were willing to do that. So we had to invent something there, too. When you say invent, what did we invent? So two things or two parts of this, and it's all kind of great stories of American ingenuity. One was a machine a portable machine that could be put on a, inside a tractor trailer van, basically, and sent anywhere in the world, flown in an airplane to physically destroy the sarin stuff once you got it out. So we made that. There was a, like a small army outfit down in Edgewood, Maryland, that 
on their own with a few million dollars created this contraption and they started calling it the margarita machine. It's this crazy looking thing with lots of colorful pumps and valves and they, they put it all together and it sat in a warehouse and nobody thought it would ever get used. But when the opportunity came and when Syria decided, okay, we'll bring all our weapons to the port of Latakia and let you take them away, there was no country to take them. So they put those machines on a boat, an old cargo ship from the Ready Reserve Fleet. They turned it into a chemical weapons destruction factory, put those machines there on the deck, and then sent it out to the Mediterranean. And for 40 days, these guys just kind of went in circles around the Mediterranean and destroyed one barrel after another until they got through the whole thing. And it almost didn't work. They had all kinds of problems, but they managed to get it done and didn't spill anything, which is quite remarkable. So how effective was this? Okay, the weapons were destroyed, or at least what we knew Mm -hmm. uh, of the weapons. There was a happy ending. Assad never used them again, and everything's great, right? (laughs) Yeah, one wishes. So it's a very mixed picture. And I don't want to undersell the value of what we did because we did a couple of things. We got out most of their stuff, probably 90, 95%, according to CIA estimates, was taken out of the country. What's left, we know he Assad kept some back, but it's relatively small quantities and probably much more protected now that uh, Assad is in control of the country and to a greater extent than he was. But the, the other thing did was destroy production equipment. So these inspectors went into these places where the chemical weapons were manufactured and had the Syrians smash up everything, literally blow up these the bunkers where the places were, where the weapons were kept. So if they reconstitute their program, they pretty much have to do it from scratch. So that was a, a plus. And getting rid of those, the, the bulk of the stockpile is, a, is, a, is an advantage for Syrians and for the rest of the world because it means a smaller chance of stuff getting out that, that could kill us. But at the same time, you're right. Assad learned nothing from this. He, he was completely unrepentant. He never admitted doing any of this. He never admitted using chemical weapons once. He's never been held accountable, and he continued to use chemical weapons. He made this clever shift because he didn't use sarin anymore, at least in the beginning. He just took old chlorine bar- barrels, chlorine like you use to, to, to purify drinking water or in your swimming pool, stuff that's not illegal to have. He had it sitting around. And so he just put that in helicopters and dropped it on villages anyway and continued to use a poor man's chemical weapon. It's not very effective. It doesn't kill many people, but it terrorizes. And so he has learned nothing. And then later on, after 2017, he starts to use sarin again in very small quantities in, in, in a couple of incidents. And so the accountability has never been there. And certainly the, the war itself just ground on. There was no pause in the killing. The brutality has continued today as, as much as ever. And so Assad and the Syrian people have not changed at all because of what happened getting the weapons out of the country. I've got one last question. What the hell is wrong with Bashar al-Assad? I, and I actually mean this. Is he? Do you think from all, all of your he wanted to do was be a doctor? Mm. <laughs> right. We had to pull him out. <laughs> right. Uh, is he a psychopath or what do you think? Here's the crazy thing: because Assad was Bashar al-Assad was never meant to be president of Syria. He had an older brother who was charismatic and was politically groomed to be the successor to the father. He gets killed in a car accident, and so Bashar al-Assad is the accidental president of Syria. His plan was to be an ophthalmologist. And the story on that is the reason he chose that profession is because he was afraid of the sight of blood. So go figure. This guy, 
it turns out to be the, the biggest mass murderer, you know, in Syria has ever had. And he was squeamish as a young man. And he also had been at one point considered a reformer. We thought this guy had you know, modern ideas. He was going to modernize economy. He briefly allowed some dissent and, and political reform. But he became a prisoner of his own uh, security apparatus. This clique that had grown up around his father and that was their allegiance was into the regime and to absolute brutality to stop any threats to the regime. And in the, in the end, he, that becomes him. He, be, he becomes this, he buys into the idea that everybody who's fighting him are terrorists and enemies of the state. And if I have to destroy Syria in order to save the regime, then I've done everybody a favor. It seems that he honestly believes that. He's going to go down in history as a Pol Pot, as one of the great mass murderers of all time. But he really seems to feel like he's on in the right. And you can see him in his interviews and press conferences. Here's a guy that if he has any regrets, has a tinge of remorse about what he's done to his own country. It doesn't show up anywhere. So he really feels this is if he was an evil guy, he has become an evil guy over the course of this conflict. I think that's the kind of depressing note, as we say, <laughs> virtually every week that we like to go out on. It does make one angry, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. So, Joby Work, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for the great questions and conversation. Really love being with you guys. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.